0: Hey guys, it is Abdul for the good folks from Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. You know, I had a little bit of a health issue lately and I lost a lot of weight, almost like 60 pounds. Now, some of that was on purpose, some of that was from the hospital stay. Uh, but I had to get some new clothes. And so, guess where I'm going? That's right, I'm going to Leon Tailoring because Larry Norm, Kim and Jr. have been taking my measurements for years and the measurements have dropped a little bit. And so, they'll take care of me just like they'll take care of you. So, swing on by, Leon Tailoring. Don't tell me you lost weight, they'll be able to tell if you have or not. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Well, with the indictment of Donald Trump this week, the former president, it uh, has been big news, not only nationwide, but also here in the state of Indiana and also some other uh, local issues as well. So join us on the news line to kind of sort through all of this is our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson, uh, from the University of Annapolis, my colleague there in the Department of Political Science. Laura, always good to chat with you. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: My pleasure, and always great chatting with you too, Abdul.
0: All right, so first of all, uh, first of all just your thoughts uh, on the Donald Trump indictment.
1: Well, I, th- I think many people saw this coming. I think overall, this will be advantageous to him, especially in the primaries. Uh, the bigger takeaway are all the questions that I and, and other people still have, right? How long will this take? Will they go through? Um, how, many, uh, <laughs> how many days will they use for this? How many abstentions? Um, I, I think there are a lot of questions in terms of where other Republican candidates position themselves. But the large, largely, they have supported Donald Trump um, in this. And, of course, like the the greater implication of what does this mean in terms of the candidacy? He's already pled not guilty to all 37 charges, and he's out on the campaign trail today. Uh, So I I think the big takeaways are are the questions that still remain, right? What does this do? What does this mean? And thus far, it looks like it won't stop the campaign. It will help him, at least in terms of the Republican primary voters, right? And then uh, we'll have to see how it transpires in terms of post charges and arraignment we've had that right what does the actual trial look like what kind of evidence is brought forth what kind of argument does his defense make and then you know where does the jury stand on it and one thing dr
0: laura uh, that's been uh, criticized about this that people say it's been politicized and the justice department has been politicized and the, the sort of the what about isn't well they didn't do anything with hillary clinton but also they didn't do anything with mike pence either what do, what do you think about all that
1: well I, I think it's true that it's politicized but i I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I think, quite frankly, anything involving a public figure who is political is naturally going to be politicized, right? Because we can't pretend that everybody was very neutral in terms of how they felt about Donald Trump. And all of a sudden this came out and they've looked at the evidence and the charges and they've made a decision purely based on that information, right? He's a very divisive character. He's, he's been controversial. People love him or hate him. And I, I think that kind of political perception, those attitudes and feelings are going to spew into how you feel about the charges or anything else, quite frankly. I, I I agree. I think it is political, but I don't think justice and politics have to be mutually exclusive, and especially in a case where you're dealing with someone who's a former politician and um, who's running for office, right, and is a, a major public figure. It's just impossible for anyone, I think, any human, to divorce those concepts and pretend to even truly be neutral on the subject, especially someone who's hardly neutral himself like Donald Trump.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because uh, you talked about uh, sort of Republican support and how this may actually benefit uh, Donald Trump. Uh, How how do you think that'll work out? Explain that to our audience if you could.
1: Yeah, well, I I think this is going to really help him. Um, And if you think of the indictment from Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg a couple months ago, right, those were on campaign finance charges all standards and stretches not nearly uh, as serious. But we saw a boost. There was a Trump bump in the polls because this plays into the argument Donald Trump has very successfully conveyed to his followers all along, which is people are out to get him. He's being persecuted, right? That he is standing against a corrupt system. And so quite ironically, um, this helps further that agenda and that argument. And, and so I think he'll be able to use this very successfully to help himself. And when we look at the presidential polling, the most recent polls I've seen are from last month, from May. But consistently, Donald Trump leads by 20 percent over Ron DeSantis, right? Uh, Trump getting 50 and 60 percent of potential Republican primary voters who say they would select him in the next Republican primary. And then you have DeSantis, and then even further down you have Pence, and then you have all the other half-dozen candidates who've declared who can't even reach single digits. So he has a tremendous amount of stock. And I think he's able to use these kind of moments to his advantage very successfully.
0: Our guest on the program today is my colleague, Dr. Laura Wilson, from the University of Indianapolis, associate professor, talking about the Donald Trump situation as well as some other uh, issues nationally and statewide as well. Uh, Dr. Laura, another issue uh, that's out there, uh, in addition to uh, Donald Trump's issues, is if you're a Republican candidate for president, how do you how do you do how do you deal with this? Do you, how do you walk the line? How do you you know criticize Donald Trump but at the same time not alienate his supporters that you'll probably need, or you'll definitely need to win in the primary, and definitely need in a general election.
1: Well, it's been very difficult, um, and it's interesting to see how the candidates handle it differently. Mike Pence said, you know, he looked at the charges and he thought they were very serious, but Donald Trump is due his day in court just as anyone else would be. Uh, Ron Swamy said that uh, he would make a push to pardon Trump if elected as president himself. And, and I think you've also seen Asa Hutchinson kind of decry this. It, there's all different ways that you could approach it. I think it's tricky as a candidate because, yes, you might be running against Donald Trump. So this feels like an easy setup. You just say, this is wrong. You shouldn't have done that. But remember, I mentioned he's leading in the polls. And those are the polls that, as a candidate, you want to be leading. in. those are the supporters, the voters, the uh, the respondents that you want to like you. So it would be too big of a trap, I think, quite frankly, to alienate oneself from the person leading in the polls by saying, oh, yeah, this, you know, we should just throw them away. This is just done. This is it. Right? And instead, they have to walk a careful line. Um, I, I think Mike Pence has probably done that most effectively, and I would say his polling numbers are really low. right? But he said he thinks the charges are serious, but he's due his day in court. That's hardly a defamation of the former president. But that is saying, you know, he recognizes this is the process of justice. It's, it's tricky. And it's interesting to see how each candidate plays it slightly differently. But they're careful not to alienate because if Donald Trump is selected as the Republican Party's nominee – and everyone who's also running uh, could be considered for the vice presidency or any one of those positions in the cabinet. And if they can't be president, they would certainly like to have one of those.
0: Which then brings up the other question uh, as well. Uh, what if, what if, if you're a Democrat right now, obviously Joe Biden, but if you're the DNC or or someone's thinking about uh, doing something next year, uh, how do you how do you attack this? Do you just sit and let, let, let the situation play out or do you, you do a little political jab every now and then?
1: I think you do the political jab. It's not going to hurt you, right? You're not worried about losing Democrats to Donald Trump. In this case, right? It feels like an easy opportunity. now the the challenge is going too far, right? You said little jab periodically, right? You know you you mentioned this. you you can't rely on it because for any candidate to run against someone else, you still have to be running for yourself. So whether you're Biden, the DNC, anybody, you say, oh, you know, look at what's going on. We don't like this. This is bad. But who are you? What are you standing for? What are you doing for the American public? What would you do if elected or reelected? And being able to offer something that's not just counter is essential. So you can't just run against a person. And especially in this case, an occasional jab, yeah, I think you use this. This would be very easy strategically. But if you overplay that hand... And now all of a sudden you have independents and moderates who are like, oh, well, you know, it just feels like that's all they do is they're just anti-Trump, right? What do they stand for? That would be the problem. That would be the risk that you run um, if you go a little too far there. So you'd want to use it strategically, but I don't think you have to ignore it. You might as well use it when you have it.
0: A uh, big question for you, Dr. Laura. Uh, can Donald Trump pardon himself if he were to win?
1: As with everything we've seen, this would be the overused word, and I say it, I've abused it, right? It's historic. So we would have to see how that plays out. It's not entirely clear. The president has the right to pardon. That is a part of his executive privilege. That's what the Constitution gives them. Um, We've never had a president pardon himself. uh, But would that be possible? I, I think we'd have to wait and see when we get there.
0: Our guest on the program today is our good friend Dr. Laura Wilson at the University of Indianapolis. We teach together on occasion in the Department of Political Science, so we're kind of talking about uh, the lay of the landscape, the political landscape, uh, not only in the, in the state of Indiana but also nationwide as well. Uh, Dr. Laura, what well, looks like uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has been having some issues with the members of his uh, sort of conservative ideological caucus, with him actually picking up a couple members this week.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting. He has um, he's had some challenges, some struggles. Uh, since he was elected, of course, you know, over a dozen votes as Speaker of the House. But recently, yeah, he has had very solid victories um, politically in terms of being able to negotiate and negotiate very well uh, with uh, President Biden in terms of the debt ceiling. When you look at um, these caucus members, I, I think this is an opportunity, quite frankly, for a flex from McCarthy, um, to be able to show the depth of his leadership, the ability he has in terms of making strategic decisions, but also to implement them. And and I would always say this as a reminder, the House is 435 people, not half of them are Democrats, so he's really speaking to his Republican Party base, but that's a lot of people to corral, right? That is a a large group decision-making process, and to be in that position as a leader is certainly very tricky, but I think recently McCarthy's been able to show um, how adept and and how capable he is in that role.
0: Uh, And how would you say the debt ceiling sort of fits into all this?
1: Well, that was a huge win for McCarthy Um, in terms of negotiating that. One of the things that was a Republican sticking point was being able to negotiate some of the terms and the entitlement process, right? So making sure that people who are receiving welfare are still actively looking for work. And that was a change in policy that the Democrats were really resistant to. They didn't want to have those conversations at the same time, as the debt conversations. Um, they wanted to separate those. Republicans wanted to keep them together. And when you look at how McCarthy approached that and what he was able to negotiate, and, and certainly Joe Biden was a part of that too, but I, I really think, in terms of what the overall outcome was, this was a win for Republicans. This was a win personally for McCarthy. And probably also a win for McCarthy in the vision and view of Republicans, right? because he was not an easy choice for Speaker of the House. There was a lot of negotiation, even in him getting that position. But again, I think he showed his skill and strategy there.
0: Another uh, issue that popped up this week, uh, we saw Dr. Laura was uh, the U.S. Supreme Court basically said that the state of Alabama had violated the Voting Rights Act uh, by by its, uh, sort of racial gerrymandering its congressional districts, ordered it to go by go draw new districts and uh, possibly give the Democrats another. Uh, see, because it be because right now there's only one African American predominantly district, even though African Americans almost like thirty forty percent of Alabama's population. Uh, what does that what does that mean? Not necessarily for the state of Alabama, but uh, for for the for the national issue, for the national uh, landscaping scene, because you still get a lot of states that are still drawing their maps for next year.
1: They are and and what I think is interesting, this is when I was following. This was a five four decision. You have a conservative court, but this would be a decision we'd say really um, aid liberals or at least a liberal ideology. this upheld the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in terms of those redistricting of lines. And as you mentioned, Terry Sewell is the congressional district representative for District 7. That's one of seven districts that is primarily African-American, even though African-Americans are 27 percent of Alabama's population. And because of this decision, it shows that the Supreme Court is not ready to completely tear apart what has been deconstructed over the years in terms of the Voting Rights Act. Of 1965, I think it forewarns to some states whether or not they heed that warning. Right, that they are watching, that they're looking. Um, When we talk about minority-majority districts, those are districts in which you have racial or ethnic minorities nationally um, that are drawn as the majority in that district. And there's a lot we could get into with gerrymandering, but I think the big takeaway from this decision, and this was a this was a huge Supreme Court decision. I don't think it gets talked about quite enough. Is that this upholds parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965? It shows that even in a conservative court, you can still have decisions that are pretty unabashedly liberal in in favor of voting rights, and that for state legislators drawing those congressional districts and those state legislative districts, as many states do, right, it is not a free for all. They are still upholding that law from over six. 60 years ago, right? And, and that's something they should be watching and paying attention
0: to. Uh, I think the abortion issue is going to play out for next year.
1: Man, that is a $50 million dollar question, right? I, I, obviously, we saw abortion nationally benefit Democrats this past election cycle. They should have lost by all accounts, right? We we're expecting a red wave. It was much more of a red splash. The Republicans did get the House, but not the Senate. And it, I, I think because it is easy to rally against something, and it's easy to get people angered more than it is to get people excited. I don't know if it will still feel that fresh for voters, right? but I, I think candidates can effectively use it as part of their messaging because people do have strong opinions about it, and we see it as relevant right now, right? We, right the Supreme Court overturned Roe v.ersus Wade a year ago. That's still pretty fresh, you know, as far as people think. So I think for candidates, they can use it to their ability to try to connect with voters and mobilize them. I'm not sure that's going to work across the board. I don't think it'll have the same effect it did in the, in the congressional midterms. right? But no doubt, uh, in some demographics and in some constituencies, that's probably a large part of the playbook. And, of course, you just got to make sure it's not the only part of the playbook. You have to have other policies. You're interested in other ways to connect with voters, too.
0: Our guest on the program today is our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson, the University of Indianapolis political science professor. talk with her for a few more minutes on the program today. Uh, Dr. Laura, obviously we've got some elections here in Indiana, particularly mayoral elections. A lot of folks are paying attention uh, to the mayor's race up in Carmel. Uh, You've got Sue Finkham, the Republican, once they run against uh, Miles Nelson, uh, the Democrat. Uh, Do Democrats have a chance to win up in Hamilton County this year?
1: I think they have the best chance they've had. (laughs) <laughs> since Jim Brainerd was elected, probably, quite frankly. Um, and it's a really interesting one to watch because you had a tight three-way race. Um, Sue Finkel was able to pull it out, but she was competing as Kevin Woody Ryder, and you saw this was nobody's majority. There were pluralities in terms of wins. Very close race in the Republican primary. The messaging here in terms of Carmel voters has to be this question of how much do you want to continue the legacy that longtime incumbent Jim Brainerd had created. And how much do you want to deviate? How much do you have a different vision or perspective? Where where do you see change being not only important, but necessary, meaningful to you as a voter? And being able as a candidate to speak to that, there's certainly an opportunity for Democratic candidates in the suburbs. But I I think – they are not the foregone conclusion, right? And so when you look at this particular race in terms of the general election, a large part is going to come down to messaging and mobilization, and they're certainly important in any campaign. But here I see this being potentially very competitive because you have that open seat and because when we look at the suburban areas, um, they have not been solidly, consistently, exclusively red. In, in Indianapolis, and we're looking at that North part in particular, right? There's some opportunity for growth. Certainly, opportunity for challenge for Democrats, and that's what they're hoping to be able to effectively do this November.
0: And your thoughts on the Indianapolis mayor's race, uh, yours truly notwithstanding.
1: <laughs> yes, and and you fought a hard fight. We've got two great candidates. Um, I I think it's interesting because these were two candidates who had a lot of money going into the primary, right? Uh, and they were ultimately successful in their respective primaries. Obviously crime has been a large issue, questions of homelessness, and both candidates are starting to pivot and address policy. You never get to that in the same way that I'd like to see in a in a primary, but you just you don't have the space and the time. Now as we switch gears in terms of the general Okay, where does Shreve stand, right? How is he going to do things differently than Hogshead? Where does Hogshead see the third term going versus the first two, right? Where, where do you potentially agree where's the common ground? I think that is a small thing that can appeal to voters as long as you're able to distinguish yourself in other ways. You don't want to look like an identical twin of the opposing candidate, right? But being able to communicate that better. And, and I would go back to what I said about the Carmel race as well, like communicating that vision, This is an interesting race because you have a, again, I'd say longstanding incumbent, Joe Hogsett, who's seeking a third term. He's well known. He's well connected. Right. Do voters like what he's done and do they like what he would do or do they want to see a change in that? Do they want to see something different? And when they prefer someone like Jefferson Shreve, that's the essential question that voters will have to entertain and consider and will be ultimately deciding in the general election here, too.
0: All right. Well, we'll cover lots of ground today. Our guest on the program today has been our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson, uh, political science professor at the University of Annapolis and my colleague as well. So, Dr. Laura, as always, my dear, thank you very much. Always good to talk to you.
1: The same here. Thank you so much, Abdul.
0: This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.